Before we get started today, please be warned that this episode does discuss mental health and suicide, particularly among Indigenous populations. If this does bring up any issues for you, there are people who can help. The best place to call is Lifeline. The number is 131114. If you're listening from overseas, they have a website. It's lifeline.org.au. As our mob suicide and imprisonment rates continue to climb to alarming levels, Queensland's peak in... Hi, you're listening to Think Health from 2SCR 107.3. I'm Shane Anderson. When we're talking about Indigenous mental health, it's tempting to focus in on problems. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children under, under 15 years of age are six more times, times more likely to commit suicide than non-Indigenous children. This episode isn't about a problem. It's about a solution that's just not working. When it comes to mental health, we turn to the field of psychology. But what if the modern practice of psychology with its roots in Enlightenment Europe is just another tool of colonial oppression? Western psychology is not the only way forward. This is the first of a three-part series where we're going to lay down the case for Indigenous-led approaches to not only understanding mental health, but for treating it too. A growing number of Indigenous researchers are offering us an alternative. It's a movement to decolonize psychology, although, as we'll find out, not everyone agrees that this is the right name for it. In this first instalment, we'll be chatting with Dr. Megan Williams. Some people call me Dr. Meg, and I'm the head of the Giramar Indigenous Health Discipline in the Graduate School of Health here at UTS. And I'm Wiradjuri from my father's family, and our country's around Mudgee. A decolonizing turn in psychology would mean no longer overlooking people's social, economic, and political context. It means looking for those contextual clues to root causes and to recognising that there are broader relations of dominance and subjugation at play when it comes to people's battles with mental well-being. It all starts with the current medical system and the ways that it continues to fail Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. I think it's, it's doing a slim job. We risk it contributing to health inequity when we don't start to address underlying issues that play into mental health and well-being. How are people suffering from mental health issues treated in the current medical system? Well, I'm not sure if you saw someone leafleting just outside, maybe disgruntled patient or former patient of the mental health system. And there's to be a gathering here in Sydney in just a couple, uh, this weekend. And it's really questioning the medical model for mental health care and the current use of medications. And on their fly, they had an alarmist rate of mental health medications in the community. But I think it wasn't too far off reality. I do see in statistics that rates of medications for mental health are increasing and including among people in prison as well, which is the area that I mostly work in and pay attention to. And I think Australia is known as a country that has higher rates of poor mental health than other developed nations. And it's certainly been a topic of great concern and worsening in this country over the last couple of years. 
how might mental health care and treatment be experienced differently by an Indigenous person? I think partly the initial presentation to an emergency department comes with it a particular experience. When you're walking into a hospital, so if you're Aboriginal, identifiably black, you walk in and the first thing they start doing is thinking alcohol and drugs, domestic violence, so you're already pigeonholed. This is Colleen Lavelle speaking to The Wire's Miles Herbert about systemic racism in our hospital system. So they don't really want to know too much more because they've decided. Then uh, quite often Aboriginal people, we get drug tested and alcohol tested. If someone, say, is darker skinned and, and their family are maybe people who we'd visibly think are Aboriginal, then there'll be a whole set of assumptions made about them and, and often not good ones. Too many of them have their preconceived ideas, so we go in and straight away, bang, the quality of healthcare drops down because it's decided that it is one of these three issues. It's drugs, it's alcohol, it's domestic violence. So there's right from that moment of stepping into that situation an opportunity for quite significant barriers to the rest of care. So you've got pain. They think it's you've fallen in the gutter or any of those stereotypes. They think that you're after drugs. And, I mean, I've had this happen to me and I've known of many Aboriginal people who have gone into hospital in great pain because you're black. That's there. Straight away, that's the idea. But say it all goes well and those staff are all able to do their intake properly and triage a person well, there's still going to be an underlying concern in that Aboriginal person's gut that the next ones they deal with aren't going to be quite so proficient or sensitive. What are the consequences of these assumptions? How do they impact someone's treatment? It can mean not getting linked to the Indigenous liaison officer. It can mean family get told to go home and are not to be with you, whereas it's a bit more cultural or there'll be other reasons that an older person or a younger person might be needing to stay. That could be about no one's got transport home. That could be about that person's already had traumatic experiences in the health system and they need someone there. That could be the family have witnessed all kinds of dramas and they want someone else present to protect that individual. Or it could be that the person present has a legal obligation or can provide additional information. So the minute we dismiss those other intergenerational layers, we risk dismissing key players in that healthcare relationship. We have data in this country that shows that Aboriginal people get lesser amount of care. Some doctors treat Aboriginal patients and then they'll treat a white patient differently. And also that their care and care plans are delayed. So say they may, uh, something may be addressed, but then they'll be told, go home, that's okay. Even though data would suggest that a non-Indigenous person may well get follow-up care or earlier care. That kills. If you're not going to give them the same treatment you give the white people, you're killing them. Or they're faking it or they're unable, maybe an Aboriginal person's unable to really explain the depth of the issue, 
or maybe they're not really believed about the depth of issue. You get bombarded with, well, you're Aboriginal. Oh, well, it's your lifestyle. Oh, you, well, you must have smoked in your life. You must have drank in your life. Looking at all these things to blame us. And maybe they're viewed as just being angry. I mean, that is so common with Aboriginal people being viewed as, well, there, there was a lot of anger there with that, or they weren't making eye contact, they were averting my view or they were avoiding my questions, so they mustn't be serious about wanting to get well. Right, so that's then used to, to dismiss someone coming in saying, I need help, and they're saying, well, no, you're, you're angry, you're not taking this seriously, go home. I've definitely seen that, and also it could look on paper as justifiable as well. If certain level of depth isn't provided in answering the questions, if that's taken on face value, that can look okay on paper. But if it's taken on face value, that could also mean, well, the the level of trust wasn't there, the probing wasn't done, and the additional supports weren't drawn on to help get the deeper story. The death of Yamati woman, Ms Jew, could have been prevented. A 22-year-old Yamachi woman was arrested and detained for outstanding fines and ultimately died after days of crying for help. In August 2014, Miss Dew died in tragic preventable circumstances in a South Headland police cell. Miss Dew complained of pain but was released from the hospital and taken to the watch house on two different occasions over two days. Today the coroner said the police acted unprofessionally and inhumanely and her death could have been prevented if she had been given antibiotics. Police who were responsible for her well-being and safety failed Miss Dew. Miss Dew was accused by the police of faking her illness and playing up her symptoms. In fact, mocked, ignored and dismissed her calls for help. Rick Bond testified that he called her an effing junkie. It is extremely concerning that the last words Miss Dew may have heard before she died were being told she was faking it and to shut up. A lot of your research does concern Indigenous incarceration. So how might an Aboriginal person's mental health issues be compounded by the fact that they're imprisoned? So there, there's a lot of stress about, say, going into prison and maybe there's a disruption in a certain medication, say, for some physical condition that might exacerbate stress and anxiety or depression and the difficulty of getting properly assessed for mental health conditions then within the prison system. Or perhaps there's just the disruption of mental health medication from the community into prison, you know, because a person's got to go through, say they've been picked up and then they end up in police cells for 24 hours and then caught and back to police cells and then into a temporary situation and then finally they might be sentenced in, in prison. So that's quite a long haul before someone can get really properly assessed and stabilised on medication. And also the sheer stress of that whole process, then the separation from children, it's extremely stressful, separation from family, let alone the individual whatever plays into mental health, you know, still there's that black box of mental health that we don't know why it just occurs. It's just something that occurs. So there's also that issue. But yeah, I think there's just extremely disempowering, stressful process that we don't give those prisoners 
any sort of, you know, support for we just expect, well, they've done something wrong, they should deal with that. But it, I think it's it's further traumatising for people who've been there before. They might be extremely disappointed in themselves that they're there again, even though they might not show it and say it. But I think those things go on for people in the dark of night. I don't think anybody wants to be in that situation. And we, But we hear, oh, Aboriginal people, he wanted to go back. He committed a crime because he didn't have anything yeah, anywhere to go or anywhere to sleep and he was going to get some stability in prison. Well, I think still in the dark of night, I bet you that person wouldn't want to be there in custody and I bet you their family would want them home regardless of what happened and I bet you the family would want good support to get well, not blame, shame and further marginalisation and the risks that go along with it because we know that they're intergenerational risks. We know that person might end up in prison, but it does not stop there because the rest of the family, older and younger, are so affected by it. How common are psychiatric diagnoses among the Indigenous population in prison? We don't have good data right across the country, but some centres have done particular research. So one that I know of and supported colleagues through were able to set up a proper diagnostic panel for that prison population and they were able to diagnose about 80% of that whole prison population, Aboriginal, with post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's potentially 80% of people who then face all these barriers to get proper treatment. That's right. And the risk that the issues, their own personal psychiatric issues, are compounded by being in that prison situation. But I'd also say if we asked a few more questions from an Aboriginal perspective, we would get yeah, more understanding. What would some of those questions be? To what extent do you worry about not realising your true potential or really living out your expectation of being an Aboriginal person? I think that's, yeah, on a lot of Aboriginal people's minds. You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR 107.3. I'm Shane Anderson. This episode, we're chatting with Megan Williams about Indigenous perspectives on mental health. Do you remember maybe the the first time you became aware of the idea of, of mental illness? Yeah, probably at a pretty young age, uh, even in my own family, from what probably I would have just thought were like erratic behaviours like things that didn't add up in someone that hot and cold or sometimes they're chatty and then they're withdrawn or they weren't reliable or trustworthy and we can sort of normalise a lot of those things and not call that mental health and I think in our families it's not to like maybe become an adult or have similar experiences or own experiences that we might go, oh, that's mental health problem, or that's a psychiatric condition. That's not just normal. There wouldn't be very many Aboriginal families or people, you know, that I know who haven't been touched by, yeah, some quite severe, profound mental health-related issues that really 
really stick in our minds and are just such a worry all the time. Talk to me about the concept of decolonizing mental health. So where does this decolonization narrative come from? Yeah, it's an interesting one because in some ways it reinforces colonization the more we talk about decolonization. I rarely use the phrase decolonizing uh, partly because it's something about us all together developing the future. So I more use like future thinking or future improvements or quality improvement. But there are fundamentals in decolonizing that I really respect, like people becoming more aware of their assumptions about Aboriginal people so that people can really see like real Aboriginal culture as opposed to the negative stereotypes that our mainstream media perpetuate that people believe is Aboriginal culture. It's really believed that it's our culture to be impoverished and live in overcrowded situations. Oh, because that's extended family, people say. But it might be extended family or it might be sheer need due to poverty, ill health and circumstances that people are forced into living in overcrowded situations. So decolonising is about developing that critical reflection but on the other hand, there's also the need for people to develop relationships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to really get a sense of how our First Peoples aspire to a better future and decolonising's then about getting behind those aspirations and using all of our resources, f- following their lead. So to me, that's ultimate decolonising is is respecting our elders and what they're asking us at a local level but also at a national level and following through that way but yeah it's a real journey yeah I mean it sounds like you have gained a bit of ground do you think things are changing for the better yeah but the beginning of my work career the national aboriginal definition of health was only newly in one leadership document, the National Aboriginal Health Plan, and it hadn't filtered through to anything. And even in my like work life with things like HIV AIDS came on the agenda more and hep C and bloodborne viruses. I mean, we have seen major shifts in addressing individual issues like that and with plans with our Aboriginal people and with resources being directed for Aboriginal-led initiatives. So, yeah, there's been some amazing changes in that regard. But overall, our statistics are showing that things are worsening. The gap is widening between the health of Australians and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it also feels like the... The spin doctoring is becoming meaner and tighter and more clever because we're led to believe that we are closing the gap in child mortality rates. But if we drill down into the data, in some areas of this country we're not and they're widening. But we need long-term change to keep any closing of gaps sustainable anyway. Once we close a gap, there's still the effort to keep it closed. And then what about that effort of moving toward a future 
with some shared aspirations about who we are in this country as Australians. So that closing the gap, not only is it only a small step in the process, but we're not closing the gap. So things are changing, but unfortunately they're changing for the worst. Next week, we continue to follow Megan as she unpacks what psychologists and mental health professionals can do to move away from the current and dominant medical model. That's coming up next episode on Think Health. Think Health is made in partnership with 2SCR 107.3 and the University of Technology, Sydney. The program is made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert. Thank you especially to Megan Williams. Stay tuned for part two of this three-part series on Indigenous mental health. I'm Shane Anderson. Thank you for listening.